Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, sometimes I read a book and just feel smarter and depressed at the same time. And that happened to me when I read Eric Barker's Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. I felt smarter because he conveys so much valuable information in such a readable way and depressed because I know I could never write something quite so good. As I've mentioned before, this is one of my favorite business books. Now, in this repeat episode from our archives, first published about two years ago, Eric and I are going to talk about some of the latest research on success that he reported about in his book. One of the topics we'll discuss are how to build an awareness of your own strengths and weaknesses that allows you to navigate with and around them. Why negatives are positives in the right arena. Traits that work for some scenarios and perhaps not for others. Tells a fascinating story about why high school valedictorians don't succeed the same way out of school that they did in school and what that means for you and your own success. And we talk about why the story you tell yourself is so important and how to take control of that story. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Eric Barker, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Pleasure to have you here. I really uh, enjoyed reading your book, uh, for people who don't know. And I mentioned it in the introduction. As Eric is the author of uh, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And I have to ask you, is that, was that a play on your name? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. it, it, it definitely, it, it has, it bears some relevance to the content, but it's, it's more me being a wise ass. Okay. All right. Well, I did the same with my second book, uh, which was Amp Up Your Sales and Amp is my, are my initial. So same thing. <laughs> um, all right. Subtitles, surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. And I have to tell you, it's a, <laughs> I really like this book. And I, as we mentioned before, I came on the air. Is it probably went quicker for me to highlight the things I didn't want to highlight and leave everything else <laughs> blank? Because might have gotten through the book faster. But uh, yeah, a lot of lot of great ideas, a lot of interesting research you cite that uh, you know counter, counterintuitive for a lot of a lot of folks. Certainly for me, in some instances and and some topics. And I think really worth getting into because yeah, I think that that this whole idea of success and being great and things that maybe to some degree are even overemphasized to some degree in in society. Yeah. The science behind it really sort of fascinating. So um, I love the way you see sort of the opening central question you posed, which is, you know, is it better to be an outlier with both handicaps and superpowers or do we live better lives being at the middle of the bell curve? Which, which uh, is it? <laughs> uh, it very much depends on what on what kind of life you want and perhaps what arena you're in. But, you know, the the issue is that when you look at when you look at the issue of success in terms of doing pretty well, you know, um, then, hey, middle of the bell curve, as long as you're working hard and you're applying your strengths is fine. It's like when we look at the very, very extremes of success, you know, you're usually talking about people who are are very different and are happy to exploit their differences. But, you know, it's not, it's not like your superheroes who just have positive superpowers. Uh, very often, 
very often those extreme strengths come with extreme weaknesses and you know and that's that's something that needs to be navigated like i refer to uh gotham akunda who's a professor at harvard business mm -hmm. school and he talks about um you know that when we look at at leaders uh you know it can be very confusing to some leaders seem like figureheads who don't do much and other leaders are you know captivating you know powerful forces that really drive teams forward and you and what he saw in the research was that there's two different types of leaders you know is, yeah, is the that filtered and unfiltered leader yeah yeah and so once again it's it's really about sometimes it's not an issue of more it's an issue of different you know it's an issue of somebody who might have really extreme negatives but their positives are critical uh, in that arena. So for someone to be aware of their strengths and their weaknesses really allows them to, to optimize around that, however extreme they may be. Yeah, and we're going to come back into that, that topic talking about the filtered versus unfiltered leader because actually you know, I thought it was fairly uh, foresightful in unexpected mm -hmm. ways reading about the descriptions based on the current occupant of the White House uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of fit some of those descriptions. So... Um, but when you talk about the this idea of success or living the lives of Belker and sort of playing to the average, uh, it strikes a chord because in sales these days, you know, we've got all this technology that's flown into sales and a float into sales and uh, you know greater visibility into the actions reps are taking, the impact and the engagement with customers, and you know more and more people are measured on these metrics, which in essence seem to be seem to be averages for the most part. And it seems like we sort of have this race to the middle sort of going on. I mean, that's, well, that's, that's really a, a critical problem. I mean, because if, you know, if, if half the people are scoring a hundred and half the people are, you know, scoring, scoring zero, you know, then yeah, the average is 50. Uh, but, but you actually don't have a single person that scored 50 or right. anywhere near 50. Right. So the average is useless. Right. Um, and, so to really optimize around 50 makes no sense whatsoever because it's, that number is not the least bit representative or, or useful. Uh, and, and, and again, you get into that issue of, of is, is it, how do we, so to, to take the standard tact of how do we go from 50 to 51, it's like, nobody's at 50 <laughs> going to 51 is not good. But what you probably have here are two completely different. You have fish and you have birds. They're fundamentally different creatures, you know? So that to, to really take that issue of, are we looking at fundamental differences here? And, you know, it's, it's, the the problem becomes we 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 often want to chop off the, the the lower end of the bell curve to get rid of those awful terrible negatives, but often the things that are producing the high end of the bell curve are also seen in the low end of the bell curve, and so we 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 get rid of oh you know that 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 employee is way too aggressive, way too aggressive. He's he's causing problems around the office. Yeah, that aggressiveness is also responsible for the driving force that's pushing things forward. If you get rid of the bottom, you're also getting rid of the top. So it's, it's not just as simple as, you know, like let's, let's, let's meet around the, <clears throat> let's meet around the average, which doesn't exist. Well, interesting when you're just talking about that, because it's very usual in companies to in sales particulars. Hey, we divide people on these striations. we got a players, B players, C players, and so on. And is part of what you found in doing the research that that actually, you know, let's say the C players, yeah, they carry some negatives with them, but if properly directed, really could become A players? 
I, I mean, it's it's more. I mean, to to say like a a player, b player. You know that's a that's a metric of 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 quality or achievement versus to look at something more value neutral like the context they're in. So you know if you think about um, you know you've got sale you've got like you know uh, sales which are very quick uh, right. happen very happen very quickly, and then you've got like you know long term contracts with government organizations which take enormous months years, or right. years to to finalize. You know, that's probably not an issue of are you a good salesperson or are you a bad bad salesperson? The people who are good at the first are probably not good at the second. They're probably one's a, a fish and one's a one's a bird. One's a bird. They're yeah. just very yeah. One's a they're very different skill sets. And what what's really interesting that um, that again, Gotham Makunda talks about is a critical element in that distinction, which we often neglect or or actually penalize. Uh, is what he calls intensifiers, and mm-hmm. it, you know, we there's a lot of research uh, uh, out of mostly out of University of Pennsylvania on signature strengths. In other words, doing what you're good at, and the more time you spend doing what you're good at, obviously you're more successful, you're happier, you're more liked. That's great. Uh, what Gotham talks about is the flip side of that, which is intensifiers, and those are qualities that are generally considered negative. You know, at at the average, mm-hmm. at the mean, they're negative. But in particular contexts, they're incredibly powerful. And that's where, like I said, if we chop off the, the left hand of the bell curve, then we, we, we hurt the right hand as well. So an example would be, you know, if you're talking about somebody who's, uh, who is really argumentative, that's, a, that's, an, that's an insult. That's a negative word. That's, that's really detrimental to mm-hmm. interpersonal relationships. But if you choose to be a litigator... Uh, you know, all of a sudden that hit this is somebody who's incredibly stubborn. They're really stubborn. Okay. That's a negative quality. Well, if you're an entrepreneur and you're somebody who gives up easily, you're not going to be a very good entrepreneur, you know? So that stubbornness becomes grit and resilience. Mm -hmm. Same thing. You know, we just, we put a different word on, you know, how rich people aren't crazy. They're eccentric. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. And so we have to be very careful that certain qualities, which we consider as general negatives, are not, you know, they, they might be in general, but if you are tailoring your personality, your abilities to very specific contexts, that's what Intensifiers is all about, is the idea that your negatives can be positives if you, if you pick the right arena. Yeah, well, I, th- I thought the interesting example that you cited was research saying that the, you know, sort of tied to psychopathic tendencies <laughs> with successful people. Oh, I mean, it's, you know, well, it, it's funny because because if we if we step back from the from kind of the, the moral element for a second, mm-hmm. if you're if you're a general uh, in the military and, you know, and you have extreme empathy and you hate to see anybody die you're not going to be a very good general. You know, yeah. it's like you're going to have to make decisions where you know X number of soldiers, unfortunately, are going to perish, but it's for a greater good. You work in logistics in that case, yeah. Over Being overly empathetic uh, is, is not going to, to get the job done. And, you know, and, and, that's, and that's, it's sad, but I don't think we would want a general, but our, our country wouldn't be around very long yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. they, if, they, if they had that attitude. So, so context is real. Social psychology has taught us anything in the in the past few decades. It's that it's that context is much more important than we think. Yeah, and context is, is especially in the world of increasing amounts of data that we have. The context is increasingly lost. 
right? I mean, we, we certainly see this in data about sales and business. I mean, there's companies that uh, have business of analyzing phone calls, right? That, you know, the reps make and they, they say, okay, yeah, you know, if you use these three words at this point in time, you're going to close more sales, but the context is missing in terms of, you know, what type of product are they selling? Who are they selling to? You know, it's all the things you talked about before. And absent that, the data is meaningless. Oh, no, it's, it's all about what, you know, what, what questions are you asking? How relevant is the data to the, to the situation? You know, how, how, how has even, even the presentation of the data, how has it been framed? There's, there was one study uh, where they were looking at, uh, they were looking at paternity and they, they said, how many, uh, how many, how many fathers are raising children and the children, the children aren't theirs. So they they went they looked at a they looked at a clinic where people went and subsequently got the check to see if your child is actually yours and they found that ten percent around there ten percent of kids were not from their fathers and they went, oh my god ten percent ten percent but they didn't think about the context <laughs> of the data because you're not getting a random clinic, sampling right? <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly you're not getting a random sampling who goes and checks whether their kids are theirs. Probably a lot of people who have a good reason to suspect it's not the case. Mm -hmm. So when they did a random sampling, I think it was like under one percent. But it's like you 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 framed the, the the data wrong. It wasn't relevant to what's going on. So you have to make sure that the context, the situation, the framing, you know, is relevant. So yeah, we have tons of information, but tons of information is not necessarily good information or relevant information. It's just, it, it, it's only, it's only more information. Exactly. Well, one of the, the sort of areas of context I want to talk about is, is early in the book, you bring up this example about uh, high school valedictorians and whether they are more likely to go on to success in life or not. And I think for a lot of people that have read the book and I've know I've talked about with a handful of people is, is they were all surprised and Tell us a little bit about that study and and sort of what it what comes out of it in terms of sort of the the lessons, if you will. Oh yeah, well, basically this was work by Karen Arnold at Boston College, and she tracked uh, high school valedictorians. And I mean, first and foremost, you know, uh, she found they did very well. You know, they they typically went on to to get advanced degrees. They typically went on to do to do very well in their roles. They 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 you know they made six figure salaries. They did very well. But they generally did not reach the heights of success. And that is, again, because of the, the framing of how we think, oh, valedictorian, you're awesome. So you're going to go out in life and be awesome. And no, that's not the case. You know, uh, uh, standardized tests like the SAT are very good at, at measuring IQ and raw kind of, you know, mental horsepower. Grades in school are much more a measure of conscientiousness, following rules, mm -hmm. doing what you're told. So when you see somebody who's valedictorian, that generally means they might, they, might, <clears throat> they might have a high IQ, they might not, but they're very good at following rules. Well, high school, college has very, very clear rules. Life does not have clear rules. There are no entrepreneurial high school students. You know, you, you do what you're told, and if you do what you're told, you get good grades. So what that means is these valedictorians went on, they followed the rules, and they played, you know, they did mm -hmm. very well. But they didn't change the game because these are not people in general 
who question the system. They're people who follow the system. So these are not the people who went on to rule the world and change the world. They're the people who went on to kind of stabilize the world and make sure the world kept the trains ran on time. Um, so the rule breakers, again, it's kind of the bell, the bell curve issue where the, the, you had the, the higher end, yeah, went to the valedictorians, but the highest, those were more the rule breakers. Some of those ended up at the bottom, the bottom tail, but some of those ended up at the very top because they questioned the system as opposed to following the system. Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> when I was reading the book, I, actually, before I'd read your book, I had a presentation that I started giving a couple years ago that, that, you know, I was trying to push this issue is that I, I think one of the things that I see, well, I think I know one of the things I see in sales these days is this increased emphasis on processing, conforming to a process and, and this idea of being the best version of you possible is sort of, you know, people tamp down on that, right? Because we just want people to follow the process. And, and I was looking back on my career and saying, okay, who are the people who really stood out, really succeeded? And, and some qualities I had sort of have myself in that regard. And, and they broke the rules, Right, I mean, they were fundamentally rule breakers, and yeah. um, you know, I had a, a boss at one point who looked at me somewhat out of frustration one day and says, "Can't you ever just say yes to something?" <laughs> and <laughs> but I mean, I think that's that's what people sort of have in common that that succeed that they have the courage or the whatever the gumption to say, "Yeah, no, here's a better way to do it. Here's a better path for me." No, and that's and that's really the the issue. I think I think it's a problem that needs to be managed because I think it's very easy, uh, and we see this all the time. It's very easy to take either extreme, where we say, "Oh God, processes, rules, don't let people do their own thing." Let them do this. Oh God, and that is protect. That's protection against downside risk. We right. don't want to make mistakes. On the flip side, you know, we hear the reaction to that often in books and articles. You know, let people be free. Let them do whatever they want. You know, let them just do it. And of course, that can result in chaos. Right. Uh, so, you know, there there needs to be some kind of management of this because when we go too far in either direction, you know, there 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 are negatives. Uh, there's no well, doubt about that. Yeah, Vince yeah. Vince Lombardi talked about you know give players freedom within structure. Oh, I mean, you you see, like uh, you know, everybody I think is you heard about like you know that 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 Netflix deck that went around where uh, you know where Netflix as a company basically said unlimited vacation time. You know, as long as you get the work done, we don't care. We're not going to tell you what to do. You know, now again in in the abstract, oh wow, you know, they, well no, but Netflix is also a top company that's hiring top mm-hmm. people who have already proved themselves, been vetted. And now you're giving them the free. This isn't just taking random people off the street and telling them do whatever you want. I mean, it's it's that kind of thing where uh, I've I've interviewed uh, for the book for my blog, you know, a number of people in the military, uh, you know, high levels, you know, special operations people, mm-hmm. and they have a level of they have a level of freedom in Absolutely. the military, which is big, which is big on rule, very big on rules, very big on conformity. They have a level of freedom. Oh, that's the better way. No, it's not the better way. Again, these people are some of the most vetted people imaginable. And yeah, once you get to that level of achievement, hey, geez, can, they're going to be in a random context we can't predict. They probably know how to handle it better than any formal system we're going to create. But there's already been a vetting process ahead of time. You know, utter, utter conformity, totalitarian rules, not a good idea, utter freedom, you know, no system whatsoever, not a good idea. 
we need to find a way to manage that to, to, to get the best of both worlds. Well, I think that's interesting when you talk about that, because and also in reading the book is because this idea of really what constitutes success is is worth exploring because, you know, if you go to the self-help people, it's all about, you know, 10xing. We got to be great. You know, we got to be, you know, way up here. And, the, and this idea and you allude to it a little bit in the book, but but I think we've lost the value of people being good at what they do and appreciating people for being good at what they do. Oh, every you know everybody can't and shouldn't be you know a rule breaking ten xer. Uh, you know we 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 need you can't you know you, you you can't have all CEOs and no managers. Uh, you know it's like uh, we you can't do that. So it's like so no, and also in our personal lives, um, you know it's like. To, to be the best, and this is something I talk about in the, in the chapter on the work-life balance issue, where, you know, for the most part, you know, a rough, a rough overview, yeah, the longer you work, the better you'll be, the more successful you'll be. But we can't work 24 hours a day. You can't even, if you work 16 hours a day, you're, 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 you're not going to have good relationships. You're probably not going to be very happy. You're definitely not going to be very well-rounded. So, you know, it's not as simple as everybody should just go 100% all the time. That's, that's not possible nor desirable, you know, but the, the problem is that now with modern technology, you know, we, we have an unprecedented ability to, to go 24-7. The doors to the office don't close at 5 p.m. Any, 5 p.m. anymore. Nobody's going to tell you, hey, you need to stop. So we have the option to keep going, and that, that's really often not in service of our goals as a well-rounded, happy human being. Well, well-rounded really being the key there, right? I mean, it's for me at least. I mean, I, I see when I work with sales teams is that sort of two issues, and they're sort of connected there. One is I don't see enough people investing on their own time to get smarter and better about not just sales, about the world in general. Right. I mean, to me, that that's what makes them more well-rounded, better, more capable salespeople, give them a better foundation for succeeding. And and, you know, it's just it's like pulling teeth to get people to say, OK, I'm going to invest a half hour, turn off the TV for a half hour a night and I'm just going to you know read a book every night. Oh, uh, absolutely. Those those are the things where, you know, we've moved everything into the. Uh, important and urgent quadrant, you know, it's like, mm. what, what has to happen right now? We, we actually focus more on urgency than we do on importance. Right. Uh, what is, what is going to be long-term valuable? And, you know, again, if you're, if you're working 16 plus hours a day, you're not going to have good relationships, which is going to impact your happiness. If, if nothing else, you're definitely not going to have good health, which is going to affect your day to day, how you feel day to day and how long you live. Uh, you know, so, we, we have to ask, you know, it's like, hey, money's great, but, you know, money's a tool. What is it in service of? Mm-hmm. You know, is, it in serv- is your money in service of your happiness? Okay, well, happiness, happiness also comes from getting enough sleep, from having good relationships, and from, from not, having chronic health, not having chronic health problems. Well, and having available so, time, right. Yeah, so, so, so it's not an issue. It's not a, you, there's no black and white kind of, you know, just keep going because if money is in service of happiness, then sometimes you actually have to do things other than money in order to get to happiness. Right. What I was referring to, though, is, and you talk about it in the book, as you said, you know, more often being the best means just being the best version of you. And, and that, that's really what, what I, you know, I'm urging people to do. Uh, we work with people. Just, you know, how do you get just a little bit better and smarter every day? How do you invest just a little bit of your time? Maybe as little as 10 or 20 minutes just in service of you yourself as opposed to in service of your company or whatever. 
No, and it's really critical to just think about long-term kind of overall overall growth because not only, I mean, even from a practical standpoint, things change, you know, and if you are optimized for what's going on right now, mm-hmm. if things exactly. are changing, by definition, you are not going to be optimized for the next paradigm shift that happens. So by spending some time trying, I mean, I talk about this in the issue of using what Peter Sims calls little bets. Mm-hmm. Where trying new things, expanding yourself, you know, you're 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 going to create new opportunities, and you're going to be able to catch that next wave instead of uh, you know instead of uh, being being the dinosaur that goes extinct. Yeah, well, I I like Thomas Huxley's saying back from the late 1800s that in life you should try to learn something about everything and everything about something. And you know, to me, that's that's a perfect watchword for people in a profession like sales is. You know, part of the way you make yourself interesting to people when you engage with them and trying to build relationships is not just what you know about your product and your service, but it's you as an individual and what you might know about something they're interested in that's completely unrelated. So being well-read, well-rounded is really important in that regard. Oh, absolutely. I think you have to, you have to really broaden your horizons if you, if you want to be a citizen of the world and you want to know what's, what's, what's going on, what people are thinking, how to relate to them. Yeah, well, I like that term. So along the same lines is, is um, yeah, we talk a lot about behaviors and sales, forming habits. And, and I thought interesting, you were talking in your book about um, changing your story. And I, and I thought it was an interesting concept because, you know, this idea of self-belief and, and this is really critical in sales, uh, confidence, obviously. Um, and you talked about sort of the, you know, confidence, pessimism type range, but but talk about this idea of changing your story because I think this is this is really you know behavior change is really important in sales and it's it's a key concept I think for people to understand. Yeah, it's it's something that's been seen uh, you know in, in tons of the research in terms of like stories of the operating system of the human mind in a lot of ways where it's like mm-hmm. when somebody asks you how's your day you tell them a story when when you give somebody your resume your resume basically is a story and and even if you look at the research and like the, the most proven. Uh, psychological therapeutic technique is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And what cognitive behavioral therapy, what's really critical there is the thoughts that go through your head, the story you're telling yourself. Because if you're, if you're seeing your life as, oh, this is the third act, this is the end of the movie, and I haven't done everything I wanted, you know, and I haven't accomplished everything I wanted, then, then, it's, then it's, it's, a, it's a sad ending. You know, it's a bad story <laughs> versus, you know, if you're in the in the first act, if you consider yourself in the first act of your story or the first half of your story, we've all seen the movies. We know Redemption. things are terrible for the protagonist right. in the beginning. They're, they're always overwhelmed. They're always outgunned. They always have a really bit. They're in bad situation, but eventually they overcome. So that story you're telling yourself of I'm starting out and of course I'm going to face challenges. Of course, I'm going to have resistance. And, and, and then the hero won, you know, versus if you feel like, oh, no, I haven't and I'm a failure. And I, what's the story you're telling yourself that I'm, I'm over uh, every every hero in their story overcomes challenges uh, versus I have failed. Uh, and then the end and credits roll, you know, so the story you tell yourself was really critical. And some of the work uh, by James Pennebaker at University of Texas at Austin, that when people are experiencing uh, tragedy, when people are having real problems in their life. Uh, just sitting down for three days and writing out, you know, what, what, what's going on in your head, writing it down. Because talking is one thing we all talk to ourselves, to other people all day long. When we write, we have to construct it. Mm-hmm. We have to actually firm it up. And by doing that, 
he's seen tremendous uh, results in people feeling better because they come to terms, they incorporate the issues they're dealing with into their personal stories. People feel better, their health gets better, they sleep better. Having to deal with your story, because the issue is that story's there. We all have a story we tell ourselves, much like cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. We have thoughts that go through our heads, but we're usually not cognizant of them, or we just assume they're true, as opposed to actually looking at them, holding them up to the light and saying, well, geez, what the things I'm saying to myself, what, what, what beliefs do these say? Are these fundamentally optimistic, fundamentally pessimistic? And is there another way to look at the same events? And the truth is, there's always another way. There's always another way, another spin to put on the same stories. Well, and also if you write your own story, as opposed to, I think you see a lot of people fall into this mode of accepting other people's version of their story. You know, if your boss, if your boss is telling you, look, you're a C player and they're like, well, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And, and, you know, I enjoy this, but I see this all the time. It's like people feeling downtrodden just because they're not getting the feedback they should be getting or, and they don't take control of their own story. No, they, they don't. And, and one of the, uh, one of the things that Tim Wilson at UVA has done, has done research where, you know, the, we, we, we look at that and we go, oh my God, I am a C player. I look at the metrics, I am a C player, there's no denying it. But that, the story you're telling yourself there, implies that people can't change. And what, what Tim Wilson's research showed was that when people feel like I'm not a good person, you know, now again, you could take that as kind of an entity belief, like I'm just a bad person, nothing I can do about it. But when those people said, I'm going to spend a couple hours a week volunteering, what happened? Even without consciously looking at their story, their personal vision of themselves and their story changed. Why? Because after a month or so of spending a few hours a week volunteering, it gets to be really hard to tell yourself, I'm a terrible person when you're spending hours every week in a soup kitchen or helping the homeless. So you actually rewrite your story by changing your actions, by mm -hmm. doing different things. So when you, if your boss tells you you're a C player, you can say, I'm just not good at this. Or you can say, I'm a C player now. And if I change X, Y, and Z, I will be an A player. So maybe I need to change my behavior and the story will follow as opposed to just accepting things as unchangeable. Yeah. I, I, when you're writing about that in the book, uh, I recalled a, an article I'd read by James Clear uh, talking about behavior change. And it sort of fit with that story is, you know, if your story is always, I can't do something then yeah, you know, it's, you're not going to do it. But if you just say, I don't do something, right? I don't do that. Um, that change of perspective is, you know, pretty powerful, I found. I mean, oh, ab absolutely. For, for James, James is, James is great. Uh, and one of the things there is the issue of control, mm -hmm. where if you say, I can't, then you're basically saying, I don't have the ability to do that. It's impossible to or say, I'm counting on, or I'm counting on willpower to power me through it, which, you know, as you write about and James writes about, that's yeah. a, that's a limited muscle that we all have. No, versus to say, I, I don't is you're making a decision. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're not, you're not saying the, the world, this is the way the world is and I can't change it. You're saying I'm choosing not to do this. That gives you control. And as we know from tons of neuroscience research, your brain loves control. You know, your brain loves the feeling of control. Uh, when we don't feel we have control, that's when we get anxious. That's when we get worried. When we feel like we have a measure of control, when we say like, I don't, then all of a sudden you become an important factor in the equation as opposed to just being a, a helpless, a helpless pawn uh, in the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I use that 
myself, James's, you know, formulation, I can't versus I don't, when I was, uh, you know, going on a new eating regimen and getting rid of, you know, sugar. Uh, yeah. As opposed to saying, as opposed to saying, I can't eat sugar, it was, I don't eat sugar. And it was that simple. I mean, it's been, for me, people who know me, in a sweet tooth, it's like, they're stunned at the fact I just don't eat sugar anymore. Oh, no, it's, you know, that that whole issue of once people, because like your story is, your story is your identity in many ways. And it's it's very hard for somebody who identifies and sees themselves as, uh, are, are you a dessert lover? Oh, I love dessert. And now you have to say, I can't eat sugar. That is That is fundamentally at odds. Versus once somebody says, you know, I'm a vegan, it's not hard for them to say, I don't eat meat because their identity is, this is who I am. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not even a decision, you know, to, to say that because this is who I am and I don't, I don't do things like that uh, is different than if you, if, you, if you see yourself as someone who does or if you're undecided, now everything is a choice. Once you say, I'm the kind of person who X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm, I'm not going to commit treason. I'm a patriot. I'm not going to eat meat. I'm a vegan. It's like when you change your story, your identity, then decisions become very simple and they don't involve willpower because it's already defined for you. Yeah. And so if you think about the context of sales, I mean, if you do have a certain expectation in terms of number of calls you're going to make for a week and you haven't been making those, you know, just by saying, hey, I don't miss quota. I don't not make my calls two hours every day and so on. It's pretty powerful for you. It's just not an option. No, and that and that's the thing is, and that's why uh, we see so often, especially with habits, that that consistency and momentum uh, are often the most critical components early on. Mm-hmm. Is just uh, B.J. Fogg, who does a lot right. of research at Stanford on that, talks about that where he that says tiny habits. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. His critical thing is minimum viable effort. You know, you want to start flossing your teeth? Fine. Every day floss one tooth. You know, it's like that's because sure. because it's, it sounds silly, but it's it's so little that you can't say I don't have time. You can't say yeah. I'm too busy, but it develops the consistency of the habit. And going from one tooth to two tooth to your whole mouth is a lot easier than going from zero to whole mouth. So the consistency, oh, what makes a habit? It's consistent. Yeah, and and that, so I, building I, consistency becomes a critical thing. Well, I think it's two things. It's, it's the consistency, but also it's this whole concept that, uh, uh, I don't know if you follow bike racing at all, but uh, the guy who was the manager of the Sky Team of the Tour de France has this theory called the aggregation of marginal gains, right? So same thing. One day, I mean, flossing one tooth is better than flossing no teeth, right? Flossing two is better than one. So each day he's adding, you know, 1% effort better to it. And that sort of, I think, is a very valuable way for people to look at things. It's just, how do I get just a little bit better every day? Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, making those those little improvements. And, you know, I, I think that's that that consistency, that momentum. That's why it's like once you, when you've, when you've been, when you've been dieting, you know, seven days, it's very easy to do, to do the eighth day, you know, but it's yeah. hard, it's hard, very hard to start. Yeah. You know, but once you've got the momentum behind you, you know, it's like you look at like you look like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's like people just focus on the next day. You know, it's it's very easy to keep up that you don't want to lose that. It's almost like a video game. You get your score up high enough. You don't want to lose those points. <laughs> um, so that that consistency, that momentum, once you get that on your side, you know, it's it's a lot easier to, you know, ob- objects in motion tend to stay in motion and yep. objects at rest tend to stay at rest. Right. 
Wow. Sales, physics, social psychology, all in one day. Great. So, uh, Eric, we've run out of time, but I appreciate you joining me. And uh, how could people find out more about you or connect with you? Uh, my, my book, uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, is available on Amazon and other booksellers. Uh, my blog, the URL is a little tricky. So if people just Google uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog or if they Google my name, Eric Barker, um, I do a weekly uh, long-form blog post that uh, tells you how to, how to improve some area of your life from uh, productivity to, uh, to influence, negotiation, relationships, happiness. Uh, and the best thing is to do is sign up for my weekly email so you can uh, stay abreast of the, the latest insights and research. Excellent. All right, Eric, thank you very much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank Eric Barker for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.